how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Rachel Dickinson writes about travel, history, bits of science, anything else that interests her from her home in upstate New York. One nonfiction book took her to the wilds of southern Indiana to research the notorious Reno Gang, an account of the world's first train robbers. Another book, narrative nonfiction work called Falconer on the Edge, she follows a hardcore falconer through the hunting season in Wyoming. In this interview, Rachel talks about pitching to editors, advice that transformed her writing, researching historical nonfiction versus first-person nonfiction, how she structures her books, the value of, quote, lost time, and how to work with agents to discover marketable ideas. It's funny, I never really thought about it until I... I graduated from college and then I went to um, graduate school for American history. And I always liked writing, but I never thought of it as a, as a profession. And then I got an administrative job. And after about five years, I thought, there's got to be something better than this. Mm -hmm. So I started freelancing for some magazines. I thought, what the heck, you know? just put my name out there, um, had some good ideas and got some gigs. And I initially started out um, writing for regional, local and regional magazines, and then um, got a chance to go to a travel writing conference. And I'm sure it's because they had an opening, like someone probably dropped out at the last minute. So I got the slot to this conference and it was a teeny tiny little conference. It had about 15 writers and eight editors. And so part of the deal was to meet with these editors on one-on-ones. And they were editors from huge magazines like National Geographic Traveler and Yankee and Travel and Leisure. So I 
I have this opportunity to meet with these editors and that just kind of kickstarted the whole thing because you pitched them ideas and if they liked it, you followed up with them and you got an assignment. So once you start um, writing for some bigger magazines, it just becomes a lot easier to keep on writing. So that's how I started. Are there any of those particular editors you worked with over time that kind of shaped the way you thought about what makes a good story? You know, it's it's interesting. The very first person I wrote for was this little, tiny, very local newspaper. And the editor there let me do these kind of really long, in-depth articles about things that had really interested me, things that had history involved in it. They were very local stories, but um, he, I turned, I remember turning in my first story and he said, um, look, I, can I give you some advice? I said, absolutely. He said, start with a scene Mm -hmm. and a very, you know, a really active scene and just put us right there. And I don't know why that had never occurred to me before, but just that one tiny piece of advice made all the difference in the world. It's like it transformed my writing. I, I think I had been viewing it more as an academic exercise than as a story, as a way to bring someone into story. So I always thank him. So we might uh, jump around a little bit, but I want to talk some first talk about your book, Falconer on the Edge. So to use mm-hmm. what you just said as an example, that story kind of buttons where it's, the beginning and the end of that book are very much about you and your husband. And the middle of the book is about a particular subject. Can you kind of um, talk about the first chapter when you didn't know your husband was into falconry? Yeah, Um I met my husband, he came to take a job at Cornell and I live about eight miles from Cornell University. And he moved into my teeny tiny village that I live in. And so I was single, he was single. We were of a certain age and we met and we got married about a year later and three years into our marriage, he came home one day, he was working at the lab of ornithology as an editor for their magazine. He came home one day with a paper bag in his hand and he was all excited. And he said, oh, I've got to get my falconry license renewed. I've got to build a muse. And I said, whoa, what are you talking about? He said, I'm a falconer. I said, what do you mean you're a falconer? I, how did I not know this? He said, well, um, I just, I haven't had a bird in about 10 years, but, um, you know, he, here he was, this paper bag had a, a kestrel in it, which is a North America's smallest falcon, and someone had found it, and it was a young kestrel, and some kids were feeding it like ham sandwiches or something, and they brought it to the lab of ornithology, and someone knew Tim was very interested in birds of prey and gave it to him and just said, figure out what to do with this bird. And so he, he said, look, I have this bird. I, I'm going to um, you know, start flying it, take care of it. And I just could not believe that something that turned out to take 100% of his time was something that I never knew about before we were married or even three years into the marriage. It's this incredibly 
kind of intense sport um, where the someone is training birds to fly at Birds of Prey and just basically working with them as a hunting partner. And so as I saw my husband start to work with this young kestrel and take it out into the field and and work with it to develop, basically to develop its hunting skills, I realized here is something, here's a world I've never ever even witnessed before. And I never, never occurred to me that someone I knew would be doing this very thing. So the more he flew this bird and he later got some other birds, the more I realized that here's someone engaged in this really passionate pursuit that is basically a sport or something that he does by himself. It doesn't involve other people. And even if you go to watch someone fly, fly a falcon or a hawk, you're always a spectator. You're never an active participant in this. And you see this relationship between a bird and the falconer that um, seems almost mystical in a way. And it's something that you know you don't participate in. So I really wanted to find out more about it and more about this thing that captured my husband so completely. So I decided I wanted to write about it. That's the best way to find out about it. But I knew that I couldn't really talk to my husband about it. It's like, it was like pushing too many buttons in a way. So I decided to find the most hardcore falconer in North America. And this guy, Steve Chingren's name came up and I just called him on the phone and said, can I come and watch you fly your birds for a while? And he was more than happy to let me. That's how it started. Do you think, I mean, would you have been as accepted into that community without knowing a little bit and your husband being involved? Because it seems like one individual sport, as you said, but also it's kind of a closed community or did it seem like just very welcoming from the beginning? No way. It was a very close community. If I hadn't been attached to a falconer, um, I don't think they would have given me the time of day. And I read a lot of pieces by non-falconers who are writing about falconry where you can tell they just really don't get it. And I think that um, hardcore falconers in particular just get kind of tired of people not getting it. And tend to shy away from any kind of um, publicity because of that. Because I know people won't get it. And then, you know, people will start misunderstanding what the sport is all about. So being attached to my husband, Tim, was definitely my entree into the whole field. And also it, it meant that I knew something before I even got there. And I wasn't going to be as ignorant and stupid as I sometimes am when I'm talking about subjects I know nothing about. So, so these guys were, and they're basically men who are doing this sport. They were very inviting once they saw that I was uh, not going to be an idiot about the whole thing. What was kind of just not to steal from the book, but some of your conclusions, because there is maybe a calling you'd relate to like, like a calling to be a writer, but that's more mental. This is mental, physical, like exhausting. It's also kind of a dying sport. 
what were some of those conclusions you got after kind of being with Steve that long? Well, I saw that it took really this, a kind of mentality that um, falconry became everything to Steve. It was, he kind of lived and died for this sport and to the exclusion of many other things, including I think your family takes a back seat, uh, particularly your marriage can really get in trouble because everything is about the pursuit, this passionate pursuit of this archaic sport that you've decided to engage in. It's about a relationship with a bird that other people can't possibly begin to understand. In Steve's case, it was also always pushing the envelope. He was flying his birds in areas where there were dangers. There were um, like golden eagles that could attack his birds. He was always just, he was so intent on giving, getting a really good, perfect hunting partner. And he trained his birds to perfection. And he really, he probably had more, his bird caught more prey than any other birds I've ever heard of. Mm. So, and he did that to the exclusion of his family. And so that became a lesson like, wow, um, I've heard of football here, football widows. I've never really heard of a falconer's widow, but I guess like it was something to look out for. Um, so I was thankful at the end that Tim was not as intense as Steve turned out to be. Did you? So I've interviewed maybe a, a dozen documentary filmmakers, and sometimes mm-hmm. they'll be deep into a project and realize that they're actually part of the story. Did you kind of realize that as well for this book? Oh, yeah, I was totally part of the story. And I think that I may have thought for maybe five seconds that I would write this without me being part of this story. But the second I, I really dove into the research, I realized everything's being filtered through me anyway. So why not just really talk about what it was like being with Steve and riding around in the truck with him, going and talking to his mother, just, um, I was filtering it and that's the way I wrote it. Mm -hmm. And also knowing that this was a quest for me to find out more, basically more about my own marriage. So yeah, it was a memoir of sorts. So it's written in your, uh, your brief bio on Amazon that you kind of pursue your interests. But if you look at the books, so Falconer on the Edge, The Notorious Reno Gang, and American Dynasties, they seem to be written or at least researched very differently, meaning like you're in the story with Falconry, the Reno Gang, I assume, is, is you doing research about the past, and then American Dynasties is possibly like a book of essays in a way. How do you kind of see yourself navigating between these three different writing techniques? I think that um, what it shows is that I'm really a dilettante in many ways, uh, a person searching for the perfect writing form for myself. And I don't, I think I've hit on it finally. 
Um, but when it, Falconer was just really a case of immersive reporting and kind of mixed with memoir. And I really enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed talking to someone and doing historical research as well <clears throat> and research about the um, geography of the place. And so that, I really enjoyed writing that book. When I wrote The Reno Gang, it really was a deep dive into a historical topic. And it was a topic that no one had really written about before or a subject no one had really written about before. So I saw an opportunity to really um, add something to the historical record by writing about it. And it's something that because it was history, um, I touch a little bit on some biographical things in the beginning and the end, but really I tried to let the story tell itself. Um, there's no way I could have improved on that. And with American Dynasties, actually that publisher came to me and asked if I would write that book. And it's, it's a collection of um, chapters, I think it's like 15 chapters about 15 different families that were influential in America in one way or another. It's a topic I wouldn't necessarily have chosen because I really prefer the deep dive. So this just required a lot of uh, research and then trying to um, pair, get everything pared down and put together so that it became coherent chapters in a book. Now, I have a book that's going to come out next year that is a series of essays, and it's a memoir in essays, and that is, that's the genre I like. I really love to write these essays, and that's what I've been pursuing almost exclusively lately. Hmm. What do you think is it about the Reno gang where they're kind of looked over? They're, they're certainly not beloved, like you think of Bonnie and Clyde or Jesse James, but what is it about them that's so different, you think? Well, you hit on it right there. There is nothing to like about them. They're hmm. unlikable characters. They, unlike Jesse James, who was, um, he was not a likable character, but he was, he was out there. He wrote opinion pieces for newspapers. He was um, literate and articulate, and he had a way of, of getting the press to view him in almost a Robin Hood-like way. The Reno gang, they were just a bunch of thieving thugs, basically, and they're claim to fame was that they um, were the first people in the world to rob a moving train. Why no one had thought of it before them still eludes me. Um, but what I love is their story. And they had a, a kind of a brief moment of fame, like four years from the first, their first train robbery to their last train robbery. And it was the way their story intertwined with that of the Pinkertons. And the Pinkerton story is just fantastic. And this was a case um, where Pinkerton decided he had to kind of remake his image after the Civil War. He had had kind of a disastrous 
um, turn of events in the Civil War because he was accused of helping um, the Union Army um, lose some major battles. And he just was kind of in disgrace for most of the Civil War. So this was going to be his big comeback. He was going to catch these thieves and bring them to justice. So the intertwining of these two stories is what was most fascinating about it. And it's also the part where I think, why didn't anyone write about this before? This is really, it's a very engaging story and engaging narrative. Where did you kind of start? So there was like, there was two movies that were highly fictional in the fifties. There was the great train robbery, which all kind of touch on, you know, briefly the story, mm -hmm. but did you dig through old, super old newspapers or where did you begin to, to find the tent poles of the story? I, yeah, the first thing I did was actually uh, start going through newspaper archives. The story took place in Seymour, Indiana and in the mid 19th century. And I found, um, I read every single edition of the newspaper from Seymour from the beginning of the town until, you know, five or six years after the Reno gang um, had all been lynched basically. And I, it was fascinating to go through every single issue of a paper and I became fascinated by the advertisements and like you began to really know the characters. You knew the people who lived in the town. You knew the businessmen, you knew what was going on in society. You knew who the movers and shakers were and who the ne'er-do-wells were. And the way these articles were written, um, these were, newspapers in those days are not like newspapers we think of today. There's no such thing as, you know, just telling the truth or nonfiction. They, people who were writing for the papers were just telling a story. It was all about, tell, you made up any facts you felt <laughs> could support your story. And so trying to sift fact from fiction became really difficult and um, really fun in a way. So I started with that. Then I made a trip to, I made several trips to Seymour, Indiana from upstate New York. And I found my way to the local historical society. And I was sitting there kind of poking around in their archives. And a woman was sitting at um, a computer terminal terminal and she heard me say something about the Reno gang asking if they had information and her I could tell that all of a sudden her ears perked up and then she turned around she started quizzing me like to find out what I knew about it and I apparently satisfied I answered all of her questions satisfactorily and then she told me she was the local archivist the county archivist and she and I worked really well together. She had all of this information at her fingertips. And I'm telling you, if you ever write a historical piece, you wanna be best friends with the local archivist because they can set you onto things that no one had, would even think of. Hmm. So that's, I couldn't have done it without Charlotte Sellers, mm -hmm. the archivist. 
One of the things that stood out to me that I wouldn't have thought of, like I think early in the chapter, there's a part where you mentioned they hadn't quite established the time zones yet. So you really didn't even know when the train was coming, if you were yeah. moving town to town. <laughs> what, what other things like that kind of stood out to you? And then how did you, did you include anything like this was said, it might not be true. Did you phrase it in a way like that, that stands out as well? Well, I was very, very aware of, um, if you're writing history, that there's this need to kind of stick towards fact. It was, um, so I tried to always signal when I was writing something that I thought was just outrageous, but I would put it in quotes and say, according to X, Y, Z, because um, sometimes th the stories were just too good not to include. And I knew there was always a grain of truth in there somewhere, but I, I tried to hew as closely to truth as I could and certainly signal when it wasn't true or when I didn't think it was true. But I loved the whole time zone thing. It's something I'd never even thought about, but of course, it makes sense, you know, people who lived in the middle of Indiana, they set their watches however they wanted to versus the people who lived in New York. And it never even occurred to me that every place would decide what the local time was going to be. And it didn't necessarily jibe with any other place. So they, whenever they were publishing a train schedule, they always said, this is the, the time was always printed in the local time. So, and even today, it's crazy. There are some parts of Indiana that that change the clocks at daylight savings times, and some parts of Indiana that don't. So it's still kind of crazy there. And I'm so anyway. That that was fascinating. I also became really fascinated by the trains and by the development of the railroad itself. And I wrote an entire chapter about different um, gauges and of course did not include it, but it's like I had to write it. I just had to, I was fascinated that some people would set the gauge or the width of the uh, railroad tracks at a certain point based on the kind of trains they were decided to run there and some had smaller ones and like the trains then couldn't use each other's tracks it was crazy just crazy and really interesting did you find if you if we're looking at falconer and reno gang did you find it more difficult to cut from falconer because you were involved in it i loved writing falconer that was the, the first I had written some kids books before that, um, uh, history slash science books for middle school kids. So I had done some, some book length manuscripts before, but this was the first time when I, I felt like, oh boy, I could really let loose on something and really explore a topic from beginning to end. So, and I loved the story had a middle a beginning, a middle and an end with Falconer on the edge. Once I figured out what that structure was, I was just all ready to write it. With the Reno gang, um, there were so many moving parts that I, it felt like this, it took a little more time for me to figure out what the structure was going to be. Clearly it was gonna be 
chronological, but then figuring out all the various narrative things. I had a huge timeline on a wall, just trying to see where everything lined up. So I made sure I wouldn't skip anything. Um, history's not easy to write. It's a little bit harder than writing something where I could, where I'm with Falconer, I'm riding in a truck or I'm standing in a field and it's about observation as well as about getting information. And I really liked that. I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed writing about the landscape and about someone else. And with history, it's a little more difficult to get to who the person is or was. The Reno gang didn't leave letters. They didn't write. They were basically, most of them were illiterate. So all I had to go on were other people's um, descriptions of who these people were. I couldn't really know them. I didn't have anything to work with that told me um, how they felt about themselves. And that was frustrating. Beyond like following the things that interest you, have you ever done research on something for a few months and then decided not to go in that direction? Like what makes you make a decision like that? I have done that many times. And the decision is made when you talk to your agent and you find out that the idea that you think is really swell is not sellable. So um, I write for myself, but I also write to make money. And if I, there are some, there are things I've pursued where I just think, oh, I just love this topic so much. And then the agent will say, well, you could probably sell that for $2,000 or whatever. And it's like, I am not going to spend a year of my life writing something that I'll sell for $2,000. So um, oftentimes this really is a monetary decision at the end, but I, keep these ideas. I mean, once I go down a path of an idea, I still, it's in the back of my head and I still have all the research on it. And I think, oh, someday people, this will become interesting to someone and I'll be able to do something with it. So it's never lost time. Anytime I research anything, I just, I consider it, um, yet I've learned one more thing. And some point someone might want it. If you were to give advice or if you were starting today, it sounds like a, a good editor or agent is a, is a big factor. How might you pitch something, approach something? Is it all about the story? How do you kind of include yourself in the pitch? How do you think about some of these things? Um, if what I do is, and if I were starting out today, I would, I tell people that You've got to find a good idea. It's about a great idea. If you want to write a book or if you want to write a, a long uh, magazine or newspaper piece, I guess those are archaic terms today. If you want to write a long nonfiction piece, um, you it's about the idea and it's about finding what the story is within your idea. You can say, oh, I want to write about... Uh, you know, climate change, but well, what, how do you get into that? Well, you find a story that illustrates change in the climate over time. And then you try to find people who are involved in 
the process, I truly believe that people want to read about other people. And if that means reading about a researcher who's working on, you know, counting polar bears in the north, um, they don't just want to read about the polar bears. It's about they want to read about people who are researching on them because these people tend to be fascinating. I mean, they're like the falconer. They are doing something that they're really passionate about. And if they are, they become single-minded and much more interesting characters than the rest of us normal folk. So finding the good story, then making sure you have all the resources to be able to write this story. You need the buy-in from the people you're going to talk to. You need to be able to either tell your agent or um, pitch a magazine with like, here are the people I would, I have access to these people at the Lab of Ornithology or wherever. I, you have to know that you have um, the subjects lined up Otherwise, you could end up getting an assignment and not be able to even talk to someone. So that's a terrible position to be in. Um, I, when I started, when I wanted to write books, I spent a lot of time trying to find an agent. And I knew I wanted to write this book about falconry. So I, at that point, you, um, I started digging through who's, who represents people who write about falconry? You can go to a falconry book and look in the acknowledgements and people always acknowledge their agents. Well, there weren't many falconry books, so I couldn't really do that. So I said, who wrote, I decided to find books where people wrote about birds, but not how-to books, but kind of interesting books about birds and saw who represented them. And that's how I found my first agent was just by approaching him with a letter saying, here's the story I want to write, here is the approach I would take, here's the people I would talk to, and here's why this story would be interesting to someone else. And that's what you do. That's how you get people, that's how you get an agent or an editor interested in you, showing that you can do this. You got a great idea and you can follow through on it. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.